you're listening to 1023 FM WHIV. Uh, we are a community justice and social community and social justice uh, focused radio. Uh, we're really, really excited for this special episode of Resistance Radio. Our show normally comes on on Mondays at 6 p.m. Um, you can also find the podcast Resistance Radio New Orleans by searching that on Spotify or Stitcher or iTunes or wherever else you find your podcast. I want to thank Mark Thomas for giving us his hour. Uh, we are interrupting his hour this week, and so thank you for letting us have your hour. And with that, I want to get to our esteemed guest. Uh, my normal co-host, Mark Allen, is not here. Uh, funny enough, I forgot why he was out of town, and so I came up here with the idea of I'm just going to make up reasons why he's not here. Um, so the reason I'm going to make up this time is that uh, he was attacked by a condor and he's resting. So he's, he's ready to go. Uh, I, think, I think he's actually like somewhere in Italy on like a family trip, but I totally forgot where he went. Um, but in, if you listen to the show, you know that Mark Allen is very last minute with things. So of course, at 4 o'clock this morning, I got a text being like, hey, can you read the intro that I just wrote? Uh, so I'm going to read it for him, if he's listening. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, she currently serves as a U.S. representative from Michigan's 13th dis- congressional district since this year, 2019. The district includes the western half of Detroit, along with several of its western suburbs. She represented the 6th and 12th districts in the Michigan House of Representatives before her election to Congress. Representative Tlaib is the first Palestinian-American woman in Congress, the first Muslim woman, and the first, the first Muslim woman to serve in the Mich- Michigan legislature. Yeah. yeah. And along with Representative Ilhan Omar, one of the first two Muslim women elected to our United States Congress, which is amazing. Representative Tlaib is a true progressive whose values correspond with social justice, economic, envi- with social, economic, environmental, and racial justice. Can you guys tell I'm nervous? <laughs> I like, never get nervous doing this show, but like, <laughs> it's... <laughs> and that's why we loved you. On behalf of everyone, please join me in welcoming Representative Rashida Tlaib. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm so honored to be here. Uh, you know, I came here because there's some folks that really wanted to support my reelection in 2020. And I said, well, is there, an, uh, you know, incredible advocacy, advocacy groups, play, folks that I can connect with? Because uh, for me, I, I, I don't want to just obviously represent my district, which I incredibly love and believed in who I was and believed in everything that I stood for and stood even against. Uh, but I also want to share this message of, of hope and that we all belong uh, to a broader community. And so I, I hope uh, that, you know, somehow just like you fuel me, because me being here so much fuel fuels me so much, <laughs> that I also hopefully be able to give you a sense of, I don't know, um, empowerment uh, to be inspired to continue the fight. Um, and it's really important, Kenny, that Many of you know much of the transformation that's ever happened in our history, including the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, did not happen in the halls of Congress. It happened in the streets in movement work, every single one. Uh, And so the transformation that needs to truly happen starts with all of you. And so I hope I inspire and motivate you to continue fighting. Uh, not only holding this president accountable, but more, even more importantly, to inspire this generation to continue to speak up against this form of hate that we're seeing now nationally. Um, but I'm so honored again from being here. Uh, I, you know, when I walk into a room more than anything before I'm even a, you know, Democrat, a, a, you know, a member of Congress or anything, I'm a mom that's raising two Muslim boys uh, in this country right now. And our country and very much is doing this kind of othering that's happening. But just like I said to the College Gems recently, is there are so many more of us than there are them. There are. Uh, and I want you to believe that because it is. I've been going everywhere, and there are. And, and more and more of us are going to start increasingly being much more visible um, because it's so much needed right now. And so thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we jump right in, I want to remind, I'll give you guys the instructions for how you can submit questions. So if you would like to submit a question, I'm going to leave some time at the end to ask some of your questions. You can go to Slido, that's S-L-I-D-O dot com, um, and the event name is Squad. It doesn't need to be capitalized or anything, and you can submit your questions. Um, one of the things that I like about Slido is that if you see a question that you like, you can like it, and it'll put it to the top. And so I will check in the questions that you guys have liked the most. We're going to get to as many of those as we can. We do only have an hour of the Congresswoman's time. So lower your expectations. 
All right, uh, so I'll get started with the first question. With the consistent narrative pushed by the president and others about you and the rest of the squad, what parts of yourself do you feel are being erased that you would want people to know about you? Wow, this is a deep question. First of all, I think, you know, um, one thing to know is like we didn't we some of us in the so-called squad we really believe we're all the squad i mean it's something that i want you to know if you truly believe in equity equ you know equity and and social justice and uh humane treatment and human dignity for all then you're part of the squad period i mean we did some of us didn't even know each other i knew sister Ilhan before i got uh, elected because she was in the state house um in minnesota and i had met her a couple of times before but we really didn't know each other and all of a sudden you know people are like calling us a squad in some ways like some sort of insurgent uh that has come in we really aren't um but we have a lot of shared values and of course what really brought us together is the fact that we were continuing being targeted um, um by various people including the president uh, but i can tell you that through what's been lost in there is kind of our stories um one thing to know is there's always this assumption that somehow my, my district um, shares my faith, the majority of my residents, and they don't. Uh, the, I mean, it's like less than 5% Arab. They may be Christian, they may be Muslim, who knows. Um, but the majority of my district doesn't share my faith or my ethnicity. And that's the American story that's not being told. If you look at Sister Ilhan Omar, 70% of her district is white. Uh, that's an incredible story that's not being told. The fact that both my parents, yes, uh, I'm a child of Palestinian immigrants, but what's incredible about my parents is my dad only went up to fourth grade education, my mom eighth grade education. Um, when I was, I was born and raised in Detroit, and when um, my dad worked nights, um, and so during the day he was sleeping all the time, so like by the time I started school I only spoke Arabic. Um, and so I didn't speak English when I started school. And uh, I just, you know, all those, I think, parts that kind of humanize uh, you and then you try to figure out, like, why does she fight so hard? You know, I always tell people I'm the eldest of 14. And I've been, I've been fighting, I've been really taking care of people all my life. I still am the person they call when they're in jail. Uh, <laughs> or something's going on in their, in their personal life as if I can fix the relationship somehow. But I, I can tell you, you know, more of a social worker at heart, that you know, immigrant story is real. The fact that uh, fellow Americans again uh, looked beyond just like my identity and said, "Okay, uh, I, I love it," because they, they'll say to me all the time, "We like that you're different," and and you think that they're thinking about my faith. They're, they're not. They're like, "Oh, you're not one of those sellout Democrats," you know, like that's what they say. And uh, and I'm like, "Okay," and they're like, "Oh, it's cool that you're Muslim." You know, my Muslim folks know what I'm talking. Cause they say Muslim, they don't say Muslim, but it's okay. Like I'm totally cool with it. Uh, but it is, it's true. And, but I love that. I love that they, they saw beyond that. And uh, to me, that, that, that's the American story that I think has been missing behind the squad is our individual stories. Uh, Ayana has an incredible story. Uh, and uh, so, so does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and her history and her parents and, and grandmother. I mean, all of those stories I think are getting lost. Uh, and I think those are the stories that not only humanize us and, and beyond us, but is, is beyond just who we are at identity, but our actual, like, you know, how do we get where we are? Why are we fight so hard? If you dig deep and you understand, like, why we're so angry or why we're so passionate or why we're so courageous is because of that. I mean, my grandmother was somebody, uh, my dad's mom, was somebody that nobody, you just didn't mess with her. Uh, she was one of those individuals that, you know, she never went to school. She was completely, they couldn't read or write Arabic, English or anything. And she from Palestine went to Nicaragua, from Nicaragua came to the United States and, uh, you know, basically had nothing. But one thing she just stood out for me as a little girl running around and, and my grandmother was always yelling at somebody, um, is she didn't take no for an answer. Uh, and sometimes I channel her uh, in so many ways. And I remember she used to sit in the room. It'd be all the like the, the men would be over here and she'd go sit and the, they'll be like, Hadja, you know, uh, this is not where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to go over here. She's like, no, I'm fine right here. <laughs> and, uh, and I think those are the things that get lost. Uh, I, w I, I hope that there are going to be more opportunities to learn more about these incredible sisters in service that I serve with more about their human stories of why they fight so hard and why they even ran in the first place. So thank you and in, thank you for sharing and that, that was a lot of personal things you shared and in line with that you talked about identity and passion. So 
I'd like to ask you what aspects of your Palestinian heritage have you decided, excuse me, have you celebrated with other Americans of different backgrounds? And do you find common threads with Americans of other cultural backgrounds? Oh, absolutely. So I always in emphasize this. I grew up in the most beautiful, blackest city in the country, in the city of Detroit. Uh, you know, one of the things that, yeah, we're resilient and everything, and but one of the key things of... Uh, of growing up there is majority of my teachers in Detroit public schools were African-American and in 1990 you can look it up in 1990 they decided okay yeah we were teaching American history but we decided they decided the Detroit public school um, school board decided we're gonna do afro studies we're gonna we're gonna learn about African-American history I remember this because it was the first time that I actually got like a brand new book and it was orange and it was like this it was thick and all of a sudden it like shifted our view. I mean, even my African American like you know co-students and all. I mean, all of us student body were like, "What is this about?" So we get this, and I didn't know that they had changed the curriculum, right? I didn't know that this was some sort of now re requirement. I just know, okay, we're going to learn about African American history. I say this because when I was in school and I'm learning about the pain of oppression, the segregation, Jim Crow laws, all of it, beyond even, even, even reconstruction, like giving people rights and then taking it away. All of that, all of that, uh, somehow through my Palestinian roots, that lens of remembering my mom being in a separate line when she was at the airport, uh, remembering the different color license plates, the remembering like, oh, you couldn't there, you couldn't work there, and the fact that even my couple of my cousins who were married um, to Israeli citizens, their marriage wasn't recognized. Um, similar to, and they, they could only live in certain areas. Again, how that connected so much in the black struggle in America with biracial marriages, by all of the kind of oppression um, that we see, that connectivity is so real. I, I love when I'm in the spaces and I'll, I'll say, well, you know, my parents are Palestinian and some of my black brothers and sisters be like, yeah, mm-hmm, you know then. And I'm like, well, I don't know personally because I still like, you know, I don't know personally, but I know they, there's this connectivity that happens and it's incredible to watch that transformation happen. Um, but it, it is, you know, from starting like Blacks for Palestine, uh, talking about, uh, you know, 1967 rebellion in Detroit, and then talking about the 1967, you know, a war, and, and th you know, there's the movement, the rebellion there. All of that uh, connectivity, I think, is so real and, and, and a really great opportunity to see things through the human impact versus policy and versus all these other things that I, I, I think sometimes get us away um, and, and really drown out the fact that, no, people are suffering when we don't speak up. People are suffering because there is othering. There are these racist policies um, that is saying to somebody, you're less than because of who you are, or you're less than, and you're not deserving of being safe just like anybody else, or you're not deserving of equality and freedom. Um, but it is incredible to kind of watch. And so when people come back up to me about certain things, it is through that lens uh, of what my Detroit public school teachers taught me, uh, what um, I, I learned being in this incredible, strong city, uh, and how that connects to my Palestinian roots. Uh, before you ask the next question, I have to do the station ID really quickly. <laughs> we are on radio. Uh, if you're tuned in, you're listening to 1023 FN WHIV. Uh, we're here having a conversation with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. I'm here with Joyce Vancine and fellow WHIV host Jenny Yanez. I'm Kenny Francis. This is a special episode of Resistance Radio. My normal co-host, Mark Allendary, is not here right now. He had a acupuncture appointment he couldn't get out of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You can have that one for free. You can have that one. <laughs> All right. So next question. The political climate is incredibly toxic and divided right now. And as a woman of color, a Muslim, and someone who firmly speaks out for progressive values, how do you prioritize self-care as you navigate the toxicity while remaining committed to your work? Which I think is an important question for every person in this room to hear. How you do you do it? Yeah. I mean, I have a special... Uh, you know, I think case of like, I really am a mom of an eight-year-old and a 14-year-old. And I can tell you, it is so refreshing. When I walk in the door, I'm just mom. <laughs> no, really, I'm mom like, and, and my staff even see, like they run in the office, they don't even realize like it's a congressional office. There's like, we're meeting with like a consulate. They don't, 
they're like, Mom, the, what's the internet code? Like, what's, you know, and, and Yusuf, Yusuf won't leave me alone. And I don't know, I don't know why, but that's so much self-care for me because I think it keeps me grounded. Uh, but they make me smile and laugh and, like, just simplify life in, in such an important way for me right now. And um, it is, it, but it can be very difficult because as my child is now 14, he is listening and hearing. And I know he, he says he's not, but I know he's, he's watching uh, because of the questions that he's now asking. And I remind him there's more people like us, Mama, than there are uh, them. I promise you there's more love. There's more, more understanding. There's more of us, I promise. And, uh, and he gets to come into spaces sometimes with me and see it. But I think sometimes it is important for me to step aside, you know, even if it's 20 or 30 minutes uh, alone in my car or whatever, just to, just to, to I don't know, reflect. Um, because I can go from one thing to the next, and I feel like I need to digest. Like, even at the last meeting, I needed 20 minutes. Of course, angrily uh, um, texting come up a couple of my colleagues about this young man named Yoel that's in detention, but... At that time, I needed to like, yeah, I needed to like just, but also afterwards like breathe and relax a little bit and not be the advocate, but be a person just for a second of, um, of uh, realizing just uh, how important uh, my position is, but not let it overwhelm me. Um, but yeah, I think my boys, they're great because I mean, some of the simplest things could be happening. I have no idea. And they just like simplify it. I don't know how to explain it. And they're funny as heck, man. Like they're sassy funny and they're just weirdly funny and uh it's great if if you ever if you have young kids there's um a book and i don't know if i should be promoting book but it's uh how to make um america grape again and it's about this fr fruit salad somebody sent it to my office and i i apologize i can't remember the author but uh we read that together and they were so great they were like making you know it was it was a really uh, kind of powerful discussion afterwards because it was I get a lot of these things sent to my office but this one particularly I was like okay this is very interesting um, but even having conversations like that where Adam goes mom I don't understand why is people say capitalism socialism why can't it just be peopleism <laughs> and I'm like she's run for office laugh and then and then he's all about right there, by the way he says he's only 63% liberal I don't know what that means <laughs> He took a test. He took a test. Yeah. He took a test or something. But he goes, he goes, I just don't understand. Why can't we just be humanists? Like, can't just people be humanists? And I think to myself, my God, he never got, like, I, I grew up here listening to Grace Lee Boggs and these incredible advocates in Detroit who used to talk like that all the time. As I'm wondering if he's, like, he's hearing those, those same folks and those, that kind of di that dialogue that's happening. Um, but they, they, they are self-care. They ground me. They keep me just really rooted and, and keep everything so real. Thank you for that. Um, also, you're doing so good with the transitions because it feeds into my next question really well. Good job. It's almost as if you were familiar with the questions. <laughs> I just looked at him right before I came, actually. Even though you guys sent some questions, I was like, uh, I didn't have a chance to look at them. That's okay. Uh, so the next question I want to ask you about is about early childhood education and care. Um, as a mother, you know very well the issues of that where 90% of brain development happens for a child that's four. Um, the average cost of child care in this country is about 12000 depending where you're living. Here in Orleans Parish, it's almost 11000 um, which is why when my mom asked me if I'm going to have kids, I say, would you start sending me checks for about $11,000 a year? Sure, I'll have a child. Um, but millions of people don't have access to child care and early childhood education. Uh, so when you think about the work that you're doing on the Hill, what are some of the best initiatives that you are sort of trying to support to improve that for people? Yeah, so there's uh, the Boost Act. And if you go to the 13 District Strong, you'll hear people yelling in the streets when I'm walking by, like, Boost, you know? And everybody's like, what are they talking about? I was like, it's the Boost Act. Um, and it's funny because I can never tell you the acronym and what it means, but it's, it's, it's basically, even though we developed the, the, the bill uh, in, in trying to, figure out how do we elevate people out of poverty. I have the third poorest congressional district in the country. Third. So 435, um, uh, you know, congressional uh, seats. And if you look, I'm literally third to the bottom. And so it's, it's very concentrated in certain areas in certain communities. And then there's concentrated wealth. It's either you're really poor or you're not. And then folks in between, even the working poor or working families are don't even realize they're in poverty or they're having poverty wages. They, they don't realize... Uh, at all, but one of the things that I wanted to show people is, you know, a pathway. 
I've been such a huge advocate of earning income tax credit, even early on as a, in the state house, but also just as a person that I used to do, uh, I used to work at a VITA site, you know, free tax preparation site for folks. And you, you have to be pretty lower income to get access to EITC. And, and I wanted, and it, and it is historically known um, to be supported by both, uh, you know, Republicans, Democrats. It's one of the best anti-poverty tools in our history, uh, along with education, of course. And I wanted something similar to that, but a broader umbrella. So the Boost Act completely repeals the GOP tax scam that passed. You know, the the, the basically the shareholder shareholder payment plan. Uh, it's a bit. It was a big tax giveaway. I mean, billions of dollars. Completely yes. Um, and I repeal that and created the Boost Act, which says if you make less than a hundred thousand dollars. You can make, uh, you can get uh, six thousand up to six, three to six thousand uh, dollars of a tax credit, and you don't have to be. You could be on disability income. You can be a student. You can be a caretaker. You don't have to have income, and uh, this would elevate forty-five percent of Americans across the country out of poverty. Three to six thousand dollars per family is is enough, and so I love when people ask me. They always ask, "How are you going to pay for it?" And I show them. I show them, let's put the people first, the American families. And I can tell you, in my district, it's increasingly, I don't care where people are, the majority of my families are making less than 100000 And it's a broader umbrella, right? Folks that are making 40, they're still not surviving. Or those, I have so many friends that come from the nonprofit sector that are such good people that want to stay in the nonprofit sector. They want to give back. They want to do all this incredible work. But they're like, oh, my God, I can't pay off all of these things. And they're literally one, like $400 emergency away from getting into the cycle of poverty and so the boost act addresses that and it would address obviously paying for this but child care is a crisis in our country a uh, hundred like it's been a crisis for the last 15 years uh, and it's something that you know when we talk about this I, I hope people ask questions like this from now on what is a priority for you um, corporation small business development or people and w because I think they need to just put people first. If we just prioritize it, okay, we need to make sure we have the per people allotment for school aid fund. You know, schools at the level like in Michigan is supposed to be at ten thousand per people. It's at seventy three hundred. Let's just get it to ten. Let's get it to to a certain level. Let's figure out. Okay, we got to do something about childcare. We got to do something about uh, you know housing. You know, uh, in my in my state, I mean, we've lost more black home ownership than any other state in the country. And you're just looking at all these things and saying, let's prioritize there. And then, yeah, let's start looking at how do we basically subsidize these developments, which, by the way, does not is not sustainable. It is giving away and putting them first before and then, you know, crossing your fingers and hoping that somehow it's going to develop into these jobs that one can't fix cancer, that can't pay for child care, that can't pay for health care, that can't pay. It's not, it's just not workable anymore. Uh, and that, those questions need to come forward, and that needs to be prior, because I truly believe that's what's been lacking is a real, like, moral conversation about how do we actually put people and folks first. National organizations support the Boost Act. It is incredible to see, like, some of my local, like, nonprofit kind of social services agencies say, oh, this is perfect, this is exactly what we need, and how... Um, uh, the the conversation about economic, you know, how do we well, how do we support our small com business community? Studies have shown, and if I put five hundred dollars in your pocket, you're not saving it. Y you don't not like the shareholders and the corporations. They're, you're not saving it. You you spend it. You go around. You're like one woman. I said, hey, where do you get? What would you do with it? She, I'm gonna get some new carpet. And you might think, oh, new carpet, but new carpet's going to support a small business in your community. It's going to come put the carpet in, and that supports another, you know. It's going to not sit in the pocket and just gain interest. It's actually going to fuel our local economy. So it's a, truly a win-win uh, when you look at the Boost Act. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I have to admit, I selfishly asked that question uh, because I'm a child advocacy, I'm a child advocate in what I do uh, for my living. I work for a nonprofit that supports that. And to say that that bill would have an enormous effect on our country, specifically our state, there are 175,000 children in this state that don't currently have access to early childhood education. So I hope it passes because that would be amazing. I mean, I, I don't remember the number, but if 45% of Americans would be elevated out of poverty, that does not include children that are extended um, 
you know, mem- a fam- a part of a, a family unit, right? So it is, it's great because it's been one of those things where everywhere I go, people are like, when is it going to pass? We need to do it right away. Um, and people can get it in a payment plan. They can get it $250 a month. They can get it in certain, you know, um, uh, payment plan of some sort that you can get it every every month. You don't have to get it in one big payment of, of three or 6000 And thank you, Congresswoman. I think you may have responded a little bit to the following question, but again, it's a good segue. Uh, according to recent polling from Glenn Gariff Group, nearly two-thirds of Michiganders, did I say that right, Michiganders? Yeah. <laughs> really this bizarre thing where Republicans like saying Michiganians, right? <laughs> no, they do. That's what I heard. And then Democrats say Michiganders. But it is this huge debate that people spend a lot of time on. Well, then I pronounced it right without not. Come here and say you were coming to New Orleans. Okay. So nearly two-thirds of Michiganders say they haven't seen an improvement in their households over the past three years with many in low-wage jobs that don't include health care. Here in New Orleans, workers are organizing for $15 per hour. Do you think this fight is one that local governments should take a lead on, or is there something Congress can do? And what are some other ways to raise the standard of living for many struggling Americans? Yeah, Fight for 15 has been on the ground for, what, seven years? And it finally passed out of the House, but I think it was because of local organizing. So some of local municipalities were already supporting Fight for 15 on the local level. There was also movement work that was trying to get like private small businesses to go ahead and support $15 minimum wage increase already to show like it's possible. I'm doing it. I don't. I'm not. I'm not waiting for the government to force me to do it. I'm already doing it. Um, and so. It is possible if you all continue the pressure. I mean, so many people don't realize, like right now, the national presidential campaign debates are around college debt. And everybody's like, how did that happen? I said, because y'all really pushed and said, this is a crisis, we have to do something about it. Um, Especially now, more and more people are doing studies showing that because of college debt, that's why people are not buying our home, because of childcare and all this. But you know, even even those folks are like, I already pay a mortgage. And I'm, they're like, that's my college loan debt. Uh, and so it, it is very critically important when you talk about Fight for 15 that you are talking about how can you localize it. Again, historically, if you look, a lot of the movement around even LGBTQ movement, it started at the local level where local municipalities or local groups or even local, like what I would call private companies and corporations were already taking the lead and saying, well, we're going to do this. We're going to provide health care to partners. We're going to, um, you know, uh, have some uh, equality um, uh, guidelines or, or laws or process or policy, or whatever you want to call it, within our own company. We're not going to wait to happen. Again, that's because of movement work and grassroots work that's done in the streets. So you just have to keep pushing. And, I mean, fight for fi- I mean, $15 minimum wage, one fair wage, passed out of the House and is sitting down in the Senate. So you, you, to me, it's pretty historic or alone that we got it through one chamber and we're that you know, we're getting closer and closer to it. But again, that should not stop us from doing the local organizing here and asking our local municipalities to, and, and local entities and private companies and businesses to do it. I've constantly, anytime I find out any of my, I don't care if it's a deli, to a lot of incredibly uh, thoughtful business owners, when they decide to take on and say, we're going to do this, I elevate them and say, this is great. Are you, do you think you can afford it? Do you? He's like, Absolutely. I can definitely afford it. Absolutely. She's like, nope, I can absolutely do this, and this is why it's important. Um, because I know where I'm at. I'm respecting also the community that I'm doing business in by doing it this way. So it's really important that we elevate them when they do decide to voluntarily do it as well. Thank you. So I just want to take a quick second to say thank you for your, uh, you keep mentioning nonprofits, and like Kenny, I work at one. My paid work is, uh, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit social service agency in the addiction field. So these issues that you're talking about are really important to me uh, personally and professionally. So my favorite question, is this a hopeful one? Assuming we can get a Democrat in the White House in 2020, which I do. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Fair point. Woo! <laughs> Not all the same, yes. Careful, we might actually whisk one. Which one? 
she reserves the right not to answer. I think this is a, this is a good one though. What do you think the first priorities would be to start repairing the damage that has been done by the current administration? <laughs> wow. You know, there's a culture that's been created of um, of normalizing it, all of it. So somehow tackling that right away, I don't know how, it's going to have to not just be words, it has to be through action right away. They have to hit the ground running no matter what. But I think it's this, it's, it's the culture. Um, it's going to be a lot of repair. I mean, it, it, uh, I don't think there's any department, any executive policy or anything has not touched somebody around. I don't care if it's from farmers to the single mom to even those that, you know, yesterday business owners like, you know, the tariffs. Oh, my God, the tariffs. Uh, I'm like, yeah, did you vote for him? I'm just curious. <laughs> but I don't think there's anybody in any corner of, of our country that hasn't been impacted by, uh, you know, the, the fact that it is the, the small percentage, you know, the 2%, uh, the corporations that benefited the most from it. But even now, they're on the they're on the they're on the menu, uh, with uh, with all of the discussions around um, uh, the trade and tariff debate and and all of those things. Uh, but I I I I hope whoever it is uh, does hit the ground very aggressively in showing that we're going to put people first. Uh, uh, that the first thing they do is not trying to fix stuff that might be corporation related or business related, but how do we focus on the human direct impact from those policies? Thank you for that. Uh, I have to do the radio thing again. Um, if you're tuned in, you're listening to 102.3 FM WHIV. My name is Kenny Francis. This is a special episode of Resistance Radio. Uh, my regular co-host, Mark, Mark Allendary, had a reservation at Galatoire's he couldn't give up. <laughs> so he is... He's not here. You're really good at this, Kenny. <laughs> it's, uh, and I have with me, I have Joyce Van Seed and Jenny Yanez. We're having a conversation with Congressman uh, Rashida Tlaib. Um, I wanted to move to another topic that has been on everyone's minds, immigration. Um, and I'm going to give a bit of a background to this question because uh, there is actually a very like, relevant local story related to this. Um, in the last year in Louisiana, we've skyrocketed from two to 14 immigration detention centers in our state. Uh, we're seeing extreme abuses like the case of a man, a local man named Yoel, uh, and I know that some folks have reached out to you about this, uh, who has been detained by ICE for 11 months despite, that he, despite the fact that he has a lung tumor. ICE isn't currently letting him get treatment or releasing him even though he has a U.S. resident wife and kids who love him. We just found out a few weeks ago that how all of this is being funded, that ICE is raiding other agencies, including FEMA during hurricane season. Uh, I don't have to explain to anyone in this room how much anxiety that gives us all. Um, as a Louisianan, it's outrageous to me that that's what's going on. Um, and so my question to you is a two-part question. One, why does the Democratic Party go along every year with helping ICE by writing a blank check for them, no matter what they do? Um, and what do you think is the responsibility of progressive politicians to stand up to this and do something about it? Yeah, it takes a while uh, for, and, and I can tell you, I don't think there's, you know, they're not doing anything. I, I'm not, this is not me defending, I don't do that. But I, what, I, what I'm trying to explain is, I think for so for so long, um, under the previous administration and now, people didn't really understand the real tremendous danger of just allowing kind of a militant type layer of uh, enforcement uh, that has been just dispensed into communities. I live, I mean, I was born and raised in like what they call Southwest Detroit, and we're a northern border. I mean, we have a, a, a bridge to Canada there. Windsor is our, our neighboring. Uh, uh, you know, city, 27% of trade comes across. So we have a tremendous number of like, we got border patrol, field operate operations. And then now that ICE after, you know, like 2000, ICE is new, by the way, it's not like it was there. Uh, that's why if you ever talk, if you really want to, to upset the border patrol folks, just say ICE said something about them and ICE cannot stand border patrol because they're like everything border patrol does, we get blamed uh, because they're, there's so much overlapping of what each we're doing because there's not very clear sense. But pulling back on that, it is a militarized approach to this enforcement. And there, all of the standards we have, which our court, you know, case law supports, 
You can't detain a child. You can't separate a child. How many times we got to take Trump to court to say stop separating the children from their parents, and they're still doing it? This kind of lawlessness of, of you know just dismissing and, and or just completely not abiding by the by the current uh, court orders, and then now this if you're in our care, you have to have access to humane medical treatment. Period, and this kind of getting around it of let's just expedite the deportation, let's just get rid of him, let's move, let's move, let's move. Even though he has a green card wife, Yoel has a green card holding wife in Florida that's ready to take him in while he waits for his waits for his case to be able to be adjudicated or to be able to be even listened or heard from. Right. The 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 fact is that many of my colleagues don't understand. That what's actually happening in human impact. I so happen because I live in a border community. I was telling people in 2010, I was talking about abolishing ICE because ICE specifically twice had did operations in front of schools. You're not supposed to be in front of ses sensitive locations. Just recently, Border Patrol's mad because I, I don't care. I somebody took a picture on a parking lot of a school they did an operation. They, they basically followed these men who were doing asphalt work for the school and started asking them for their documentation. They were doing all of this, even this woman who's running around one of my parks, you know, she's just exercising in the morning, asking her, what, where's your documentation? She's a green card holder, right? How many of my U.S. citizen green card holders, just put aside, is being asked? I wonder, because they said, well, they were suspicious. They kept putting the signal on. Her. I said, they probably saw that you were Border Patrol. Would you have thought it was erotic and suspicious if they weren't brown? Just asking. Why are you, call local police. You are not supposed to do area patrolling. Instead of them focusing on the border, focusing on that, where they're, that's what they're supposed to be doing, they are now turning their attention to our communities, to our immigrant neighbors who have been here forever. And but for the fact that they have not done enough, you, trust me when I tell you it's been 20 to 30 years, they have done nothing to fix our immigration system. There are people that are married to US citizens that can't adjust their status here. Some have literally been here 10, 15 years, married to a US citizen, they can't adjust. Or somebody that was transitioning from one visa to the next. It doesn't matter. All the layer of, of kind of criminalizing has, has prevented people to actually get access to whatever they call the line. I said, there is no line. You show me a line, I promise you I will back off. There is no line. Uh, it is chaotic, it is broken, and it is a system that now is just criminalizing, dehumanizing. And I mean, for somebody to have tumors in his body and has a family member to there, and they're sitting there lying saying he doesn't want care, even though he's literally been, you know, having these conditions I think he's had like some sort of heart issues, everything, all the outcome, you know, leading to the fact that he most likely has cancer. They are not getting him the care that he needs. Uh, that's when we just, it's becoming so unbelievably, if you can hear my passion about this, when you actually talk to family members that are losing their family members left and right, getting deported, again, from just driving while brown, waiting until somebody finally has the courage to say let's pass a comprehensive immigration reform or had the courage to say i don't know that bar you know there's permanent bar thing where well if you've been here for this long and you've been a good citizen and you're, you're you have u.s you're like your spouse is u.s citizen or your sister applied for you that should be enough and don't ab allow anybody to tell you that oh this is so unprecedented what's happening you know all these folks coming to our border we had more people showing up at the border in the 80s than we do now. Did you all know that? And detention was very rare. You complain about, oh, well, it shouldn't take that long for our time. That's on you all. You're not putting enough resources for judges to actually make those decisions. Uh, when you say all these things, well, why, why can't you unite a father with their child if their child has legal status? Why isn't that happening? Why are we, why are we just blanketly criminalizing? And then dig deeper. When I heard that you all went from two detention centers to 13 or 14, watch who they are. Like, I know for a fact, Geo, and I can't remember City, whatever their names are. Yeah, what is it called? Core City. You look Core Civic. Thank you. Core Civic and Geo. I want you to pay attention because they're the same people that are promoting mass incarceration of our black brothers so, and sisters. So I, 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 I want you to open up the current because those are the same people that are benefiting from this broken immigration system. 
They're benefiting from the detention, $725 per day versus less than 200 or so sometimes if they stay in the care of, 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 of our government, like they're, or they're with a, a more of a, in the, on the public se uh, sector. If you open a curtain, you say, oh my God, GEO and, and Civic Group gave how much money to uh, Trump's inauguration committee? You gotta connect it all. You have to connect it that it's become a profit-driven system because think about it, none of us benefit from a broken immigration system. We really don't. It is tearing up our neighborhoods. It's actually creating anxiety even among us. I, I, I'm so scared my mother who's been a US citizen for almost 40 years is gonna get stopped being asked for documentation, be detained for hours before they're like, oh yeah, she's a US citizen. Like we are criminalizing, militarizing this, like allowing this agency to become this militar militarized kind of surveillance on our people. And if you look and follow the money, you will see that's why they're doing nothing. It's because these are the same people that are supporting the current administration, the same people that are saying nothing about it, and are saying that, oh, well, this we need to do this because of this or that. These are the same people I think are so interconnected to what's happening, I think, across the country on uh, uh, you know, creating a for-profit industry in our education system, for-profit industry in, in our correction system, you, you name it, you keep going, it is all connected. It is the same people making money off of just human tragedy. Thank you so much for, for that. Um, and speaking that truth of power, it's really, really important. This is where Mark Allen, if you were here, would say it's not a bug of the, it's not a bug of the system, it's a design of the system. Um, and like you said, in mass incarceration, you've seen the same thing. Um, so I have one more question for you, and then we're going to get to questions from y'all. Uh, as a reminder, if you'd like to submit a question, you take out your phone and go to slido.com. That's S-L-I-D-O.com. The password for the event is squad, um, and submit your question. If you see a question up there that you already like, you can like it, and the ones with the most likes are going to pop to the top for me to read. Um, Wait, so I want to say, too, yeah. if you're on Twitter, you can tweet us at IndivisibleNO, hashtag the squad, hashtag INOLA, and... That was it. You also could find us on Facebook with the same stuff. Um, so the last question I have for you before we get to the audience questions, is this one's a little bit of, a more of a fun one. Um, a couple of years ago when we were in yet another uh, budgetary crisis in Louisiana, the our state government did what was probably, they didn't really expect it to go this way. They put out this thing that was like, go to this website and here's a game you can play. How would you do the budget? And I think they got a lot more responses than they ever thought they would get that were m much more reasonable than our current budget. And so I wanted to play the same game with you um, to give folks some co some context here. So currently, roughly of our roughly 30% of our national budget is discretionary funding, and Congress decides how that money is spent um, through year the yearly appropriations process. Um, it's about a trillion dollars every year. Currently, the way that is spent is that 54% of those dollars goes to the military, um, and then co by contrast, we spend a combined 90% of the budget on food and agriculture, transportation energy and the environment, housing and education. So just to say that again, 90% of our budget covers those things and 54% goes to just the military. So my question no, is- so, Sometimes I would just say Department of Defense, all that. So just know it's not just, because you know, my veterans in my district are so tired of people saying it like that and they think it's to, to the, for them and it's not. So I just I want that, folks to clarify that. That is a very fair point. So my question to you is, if you could wave a magic wand and you were in control of how we spent this trillion dollars, how would you spend it? I, it would, obviously, the first thing is, um, it would be completely for schools first. Like, if there's some way that we were gonna end poverty in our country and really start, is, is trying to get back our public school systems um, and fully funding um, access to really incredibly beautiful quality education for our kids. It's there where, you know, we were able to even address civil rights issues, right? You know, like kind of the, no matter, you know, even my residents think, I don't know if it should have been desegregated in that way or, you know, int integration should have maybe happened this way. Point is, it did force a um, kind of a reckoning of what was happening by forcing, if, if we're gonna do this, it's gonna impact all of us, not just, oh, black schools versus brown schools versus other, you know, so forth. But it would definitely, a dream, honest dream, would be having uh, probably per people allotment at where it needs to be in every state uh, to have get, and get back our, our public education system in a way where my teachers are not having two or three jobs aside, all of those things. 
every one of us is going to be touched by the public school system. And all, all of my kids, you know, when I tell them that when I went to school, we had three high school counselors where they now have one that they share with three other high schools. Or, you know, when I left school, like we had all these other programs and they're like, what? I never, we don't have that. Uh, and I tell them, oh, and I left with a driver's license where now they don't even have driver's ed. Like, you know, you know, especially in Michigan, like we don't have a transit system really at all. Um, and so getting all of that now has become for profit. Like you actually have to have money to get a, a driver's license because you have to do a course and all that kind of stuff. Just the things of just the divestment that has happened with our school system and allowing you know it to become a for-profit education industry versus really truly public. Uh, I think I would want to focus on that first. Uh, other dreams are, um, you know, I I I love the idea of um, you know really supporting a like a green economy um, and moving towards that. I live in, a, our county has uh, some of the worst air qualities in the, in the state. Uh, we're having a huge uh, crisis now with water uh, and people getting their water cut off and so forth, is how do we get back our public infrastructure the way it needs to be and how does that uh, feed into a green new economy, a real uh, a new engine uh, that uh, gets us away from you know creating dirty air or um, impacting our our environment and even our public health, of course. But yeah, I think it would be a dream to really invest in something like that uh, second. Uh, and that would, to me, would create a new, I think, job sector, just just a, a new um, career path or manufacturing. You saw what happened with like manufacturing industry and the big three people used to be able to graduate from high school and go straight into the plants and now it created the middle class. I just want to do something of that sort to fuel it. And, and I think I would spend a tremendous amount of money on those two things to be re really be able to give back to the community that raised me and for it to be transformative. So no, so no corporate welfare. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know anything about me, Kenny, but um, I, I helped put a ballot measure in the city of Detroit, you talk about movement work, which required, um, if you're gonna get in the corporate welfare line or the tax giveaway line, if it's $300,000 or more, then you have to actually sign a legally binding contract, no memo, no little like one meeting thing, but actually a legal binding contract that gave us legal standing to take them to court on every promise they made. So a community benefits agreement. And it was the first time uh, any city has been able to put it on the ballot. Uh, and just with $11,000 that we raised, we almost got it done. I mean, we were almost so close. The best part was when we collected enough signatures to get it on the ballot, uh, the shock from the city administration they underestimated their own residents. You could see the shock from, from members of the city council were like, what? I said, there, I was like, yep, we, we did it in 29 days. We collected enough signatures with only volunteers and we got uh, a community benefits ballot measure on, on the ballot. And, and the, what really made it, messed it all up is because the corporate, everybody came together. They spent millions of dollars. <laughs> no, Kenny, it was awesome. <laughs> A millions a, of dollars amazing. on TV ads, like like bougie ads, and and all this stuff, and like oh don't don't vote for proposal A, it's awful, and then they had proposal B, uh, so they had a city council person that kind of sold us out because the only other way you could put a ballot another you know a ballot measure is through petition, is through signatures, or through a resolution, and this guy totally did that for you know his 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 corporate friends and for the mayor at that time, he still is the mayor. Anyway, so he, they put it in there, so it was Prop B, which had the same intro, so people were confused. So I was like, you know, Prop B is the BS one. Can I say that already? Yeah. And, and, and it, you know, it's bad and all this stuff. But people were confused. They were. And they were seeing these ads thinking, oh, my God, uh, A is awful and it doesn't do this. So they weren't hoping that A or B would pass. B passed. And it's kind of been a thorn, like, in their, like really, P passed, and it requires, like, minimal stuff, but it doesn't end up in that legally binding contract to push back on that. But, yeah, I, I got to tell you, it's like, it's, like, crazy that we keep doing the same thing over and over again. Now there's this been whole debate about opportunity zones, like, mm, what is the, what, it's basically giving people a tax break on their capital gains. You probably don't know that, but it's, it's, it's all for, like, big housing development that, you know, pushes gentrification and pushes all this stuff, pushes more people in poverty and constant, or, pushing towards concentrated poverty. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I would not be supporting that at all, yeah. 
I, I appreciate you bringing that up because our, our current council is thinking about opportunity zones. So pay attention to the city council, y'all. Like it's yeah, a big and deal. I can send I can send it to you. You should know opportunity zones. Get the data first. Show them because they're desperate to say we want to track development, but they don't realize. Uh, there is no guarantee. There is actually no reporting requirements, no accountability measures in there. It got stuck in the 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 bill, uh, the tax, the GOP tax scam. It got tucked in there, um, and uh, it isn't it isn't the same. It isn't what they think it is, and and that's why we need to really e either expand it or repeal it or just uh, attach, saying, okay, if you want this, it's great, but you have to all the money that you save has to go towards lead abatement, right? Or yes, that kind of thing, yeah. So we have to put some teeth. We can't just give people you know, these blanket breaks. Capital gains, by the way, you might think you're a nonprofit and you do housing. No, you, you have to be, I mean, capital gains is like you're making a profit off of this, you got this gains, you're supposed to get taxed. And it's gonna impact your state revenue too. And not only the federal revenue, but it will impact your state revenue. And it's just basically money back into their pockets. They don't, they're not required to do much with it, except build something that makes them money. Thank you for that. Um, I want to get to some of the questions from the crowd. Uh, just one more time, though, that if you're listening in, you're 1023 um, FM WHIV. My name is Kenny Francis. Uh, this is a very special episode of Resistance Radio. Mark Allen is not here today. Uh, he's trying to finish the Times crossword puzzle, so you just couldn't make it in. Uh, I have with me Joyce Van Seed and Jenny Yanez, and we're sitting here with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Uh, so we're going to get to some of the questions from y'all. So the top question that folks, someone sent in is, what do you believe restorative justice looks like for communities affected by environmental racism like Flint, Detroit, and New Orleans? Yeah, it, it, it means prioritizing, obviously, the budget, but also recognizing what doing nothing looks like. That's what it looks like, right? Uh, it really is. If you want to see what doing nothing looks like, it's poisoned water. It's kids getting lead, you know, poisoned. It's, it's actual people dying from it. Um, and you can see that people's answer at the time were these quasi-governmental authorities over our water infrastructure, all these other things. That's not going to work. And so for me, restorative justice means recognizing that it's happening, but also pulling back the ranks and saying, enough. We, the public, have to do it. I, I'm really tired of us leaning on the corporate interest groups that have been trying to come in here saying, we'll do it and everything. But guess what? We, our lights are still, like, shut down because, you know, we have this thing called the... Um, uh, uh, you know, DTE pretty much, are, they have literally came in and taken over our lighting system. And the infrastructure just keeps falling apart because they're not, they're making money, they're not investing, the lighting, they're really not investing back into the infrastructure. So every time you pay your bill, it's not going back into the infrastructure, it's actually going to the back, uh, the, to their, board, their shareholders. And so it's really important that we take back our, you know, ownership and that the, it's real community co-ownership of our infrastructure enough with us bringing these you know these this idea around public private partnership we tried it it didn't work it led to what we had happen in flint because they they chose they chose the profit the money looking at the spreadsheets versus oh my god this is poison water it's going to kill people and that's exactly what happened it was criminal congresswoman since you mentioned flint and we are all aware all around the country of that disaster can i ask you if you know about gordon plaza which is our environmental disaster. Our families are dying of cancer, have died of cancer, and continue. Are you aware of Gordon Plaza? Can you use the mic? Because we're on radio. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not aware. I'm so sorry that I'm not. I apologize. Okay. Um, so that's kind of also indicative that this is such a major disaster so close to our hearts, and that Flint became close to our hearts everywhere. Gordon Plaza should be made aware of at the national level. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that with yeah, us. Yeah, and, and I think it took, honestly, Flint took um, uh, congressional hearings, so, you know, demand some sort of congressional. So right now, you should know, we're having a field hearing in my district. I'm bringing Congress to my district. I'm vice chair of the Environmental um, uh, Committee on o House Oversight. And so the, the whole issue around water quality and air quality in my district is, is really at the front line. I mean, my folks, we had started We Have a Right to Breathe campaign. We've been starting um, a lot of movement work locally and trying to push back against, um, we finally got the Detroit incinerator is closing down now where they're burning the, the garbage, the waste there. And we're having now a public hearing where I'm actually having community members and Flint's at the table, of course, talking about uh, the crisis and what's happening and that it is, we're not calling it criminal negligence, but it is on the part of the government not doing anything about it. Like, you know, you have EPA was part of what happened in Flint. All of those connectivity needs to happen. But we have to bring it to the national light. Um, 
it's sad because people really do think because Flint's not in the media as much anymore that it's got fixed, and it's far from that. They actually are m so much worse off now in some ways because of people thinking that, okay, well, they spent this money a little bit, so they're replacing some pipes, and that's, that's what's, this is great. We're moving that direction. But it's not at the sense of urgency that the residents are at. And that's always seems to be the lack of the sense of urgency. Like these are years and time that we can't get back for our residents. Uh, we can't get back this time and we can't bring back their loved ones or you know their healthy bodies back. This is like permanent irreparable harm on people's lives. Um, but so I would ask that you know you, you call for a public congressional field hearing right here in your community, ask for it. As advocates, I can tell you, if I had known that that was even possible when I was you out there, I, I would have been asking for that. So I'm teaching you now. I didn't know that was even possible, really. Uh, I heard, you know, we used to have town halls and everything, but to actually have a clerk come down and actually congressional hearing in your backyard uh, it can be very powerful, and it's in the congressional record forever. Thank you so much for that. That's uh, um, I want to get to at least two more questions from the audience, uh, but just for folks who may be completely unfamiliar with what we're talking about. Gordon Plaza is a community in New Orleans that's out by the, by the Desire, where the Desire Project used to be. Um, it was built on a toxic wasteland. Um, it was a dump that was used until the 50s as a waste dump. Um, it was closed down in the 50s. It was reopened briefly um, to put hurricane debris in there. And then in the mid to late 70s, a city of New Orleans program was started to sell um, homes built on this property that was supposed to be affordable housing that was specifically aimed at low-income black residents. Um, they were never told that their houses were built on a toxic wasteland. Um, fast forward 20-something years, people started getting sick in the late 80s. Um, they finally get the EPA to do an investigation. It's designated a Superfund site, um, just like other places around the country have been. Um, the residents were not moved. They fought, they've been fighting since the 90s to be able to get fair, um, re, fair, fair, fair relocation and uh, reimbursement for their houses, because you can imagine they sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars into a mortgage to a house that's literally killing them. Um, and the last part I'll add, um, Mark Allen and I did about a two-hour special on this last year this time, um, where we actually went out there and talked to a lot of residents of the ones that are still remaining. And there are 52 families currently still living there. And these are people who, after everything they went through, and after everything, fighting, fighting, fighting the city and the federal government, Katrina happens. And while everyone else is getting money from FEMA to rebuild their homes, FEMA says, well, you guys are a waste site. A waste site. You're a red tag. We can't give you money for that. So imagine... All of that happens, Katrina destroys your house, and now you're not getting any of the federal dollars that other folks are getting to rebuild. And so you are forced to rebuild your house that's literally killing you with money that you somehow have to come up with. I and mean, I don't know about you all, but it's criminal negligence. Yeah. It really is. And I know it's hard because it's like our own government, but I mean, it's okay. it's, you, we have to raise the bar. Like, you cannot neglect a whole body of people because you didn't pay attention, you didn't hold the folks accountable, and they, they did all this under our watch. And so Without it, tax dollars. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I would really push in some sort of way uh, and I would be able to, you know, support you all in any way possible. But to try to have a put it all on record in the congressional record, um, elevate it in some sort of way. But it, it took so long. I want you to know it took almost two years before Flint became obviously on the national stage and people finally, I mean, it became like a, a national debate even with the campaigns, uh, you know, what are we gonna do about Flint? Um, but Flint is, is, I love my Flint neighbors because the residents there say, yeah, we're one, but there are so many others that they hear about that this is happening to. And I'm sure they know exactly what's happening there. I, it is really great to watch them even doing the connectivity work that I think is really, really important. Like people call them all the time, Flint rising, like, how did you all do it? Like, how did you finally get the attention or people finally paying attention to you all? And, and it is, in some ways, just keep pounding the doors, keep pushing back. Sometimes I feel like we're going to give up because it looks so impossible. But even the acknowledgement that it's happening, that it's wrong, and that there's criminal negligence, that something has to be done, that alone is part of the healing for the 52 families that are left. They want to be believed. Does that make sense? So sometimes that's the first step. And some of them feel like, okay, you have to believe us, but you don't believe us that something should be done. Or you don't believe that, yeah, that they did, they're deserving, if that makes any sense. Um, and so it's really important in any way possible to make sure that that happens. Thank you for that. 
Um, I, would, I want to get to these last two really quick before we let you go. Um, but we're about to get cut off on the radio right at 1. So I want to say, if you've been listening, you're listening to 1023 WHIV FN. This has been Resistance Radio. Sorry that you guys have to go, but we're going to ask these last two questions. Um, um, so, what? A, yes, relocate those people right now and give them money for it. Um, so, one of these last two questions, Mark Allen actually got one in. Look at him. He got likes on his question and everything. Um, so, Mark Allen. with the gro- crossword puzzle? Well, he, he, was try- he was trying to text me a question. I was like, you have to get in line like everybody else. Good for you, Kenny. Yeah. See? Yeah. That's the fairness part. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But Even apparently, though it's his show. Apparently, 14 people thought that his question was a good one. Um, so, his question is. Now that you see how the levers of power work in D.C., what can we do moving forward to get a progressive agenda taken seriously? I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to reiterate, Grace Lee Boggs said this all the time, that, mo- that anything transformative happened in the streets and in, in, in work in the movement, and she called it consciousness, the, the awakening, right? Everybody say, stay woke, you can call it consciousness or whatever, and she was a true humanist. She really, truly was. And she said anything transformative, including taking back our Congress. And the majority of my colleagues are millionaires. They're in an income bracket that's so completely disconnected with the American people, with the struggle. They don't get it. Uh, and so I, I, even those that are really good, nice, great people will not understand. I mean, these are the same people that ask, like, we're looking at each other, like, why are federal employees during the shutdown at the food bank? We don't get it. Uh, they don't understand people live by check by check and what that really feels like. They don't understand not being able to afford their insulin. Or in my, in my community, the fact that they have to pay, like, you know, the highest auto insurance in the nation. All, all because they're using non-driving factors like your credit score proxies or your marital status. Who gives who cares if you're, I know, I'm good. Who cares? I know we're off the right. Don't worry, who, I'll pay the fine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who cares? I didn't say it, though. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares if you're married, divorced, widow? You know, I have a, a, a person, as soon as they retire, they went up. All of those things, um, you know, I think you know, it's really important that you continue to get out there and demand it and demand the transformation. And also the leverage of power, I'll tell you, finally people like myself were running for office and we're winning because we're giving people a choice. I keep telling folks, you know, Michigan turned red after what thirty something years or something crazy like that. We it, 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 he and he won the state of Michigan by ten thousand votes. The part that you don't even know is that ninety thousand people, close to ninety thousand people, got in line to go vote in Michigan in two thousand sixteen and skipped top of the ticket. They didn't vote for the third party candidate, the Republican candidate, or the Democratic candidate because they don't want corporate led driven kind of agenda they're tired of it and so the way to do it is they're getting more people like us like-minded people running for office so people do have a choice when they go there i mean just imagine the fact that people didn't feel like they there was a difference no matter where you stood that's the reality right now i think especially in the midwest uh for us it's a reality i mean the, the economic injustices that are happening across from my wisconsin farmers to, to what's happening in the manufacturing industry where more and more of these, you know, big three, after we bailed them out, they're leaving us now. One of the largest plants in my district is leaving. After we bailed them out, after we gave them pretty much allowed them to destroy a whole neighborhood. And I say, okay, you're closing. That was against the more, the, the, they were not supposed to close any plants because the part you don't know is the contract they negotiated with the UAW workers. They said, okay, we're going to lay off people. We're going to do these buyouts. You are going to have a moratorium. You basically cannot close any more plants. Well, their lawyers came up with a beautiful thing called, we're going to idle it. What? Again, it it is that injustice of, like, who's going to stand up to the big three? Who's going to stand up to the banks? Who's going to stand up to so the injustice that you see that's happening, I think, to just regular folks? Uh, They don't feel like they have a voice. We have to give them better choices, and that means people like us running for office. Last one. Thank you. And thank you just, thank you so, so much for your time. Um, last one. And thank you whoever put this question in. You didn't put your name, but this is a really good question, particularly given that you're from Michigan and what we're seeing here in New Orleans. Um, from a policy standpoint, what are your, what do you think the most effective responses and prevention for the negative rapid gentrification? Oh. I, I mean, I think... Uh, in Michigan, and especially in my in my district, is um, it's very unfortunate. But your local elected, you know, for me, a lot of these projects that have to come, they have to go through city council. Is that the same way here? Yeah. 
and and it's great that they're here. But I, I I want you to know, you all have to give some cover to some of these folks that like support us. But they're selling us out. Now I'm not saying your your folks, but I I know for a fact that many of these large scale developments that are coming in, we're not requiring anything of them. We do this stuff that. You say you have to do this, you have to hire a certain amount of people from the community, but then nobody goes back and audits them and says, you didn't, so give us back our land and give us back, like, I'll take, take the part, take it back. Even if it, like, rezoning, using that for leverage. The one incredible thing that our local government has is uh, control over land use. It is an incredible power that our local government does not realize they have. Use it as leverage. No matter if they, the state's saying they got this big, great, Fine, but welcome to New Orleans, and let me tell you something about what's happening here in our community. This and this and that. Oh, affordable housing, okay, well let's talk about what your definition of affordable housing is. And they're gonna come and they'll gaslight your members of the city council, they're gaslight your zoning board, they're gonna gaslight them to make them say, well we can't do it this way because it doesn't fit the definition for the federal government for us to draw down this money. And say, well, okay, but that's too bad. Well, right now this is what we want you to address. I know like in Baltimore, they're starting to switch it up where they're saying uh, one developer came and they were doing mixed use. They said, okay, fine, but you're going to give us $800,000 for our workforce development trust thing. You're going to put that money in there. Then you can go sho become shovel ready. That's okay. Like, why aren't we asking for more? And, and the more discretionary funding that we demand of them to put into funds, I mean, we are right now in Detroit fighting. Our, we have a housing trust fund, but we want to fight for more of our land bank to, to allow, like, to push, get us moving towards, like, more of a community uh, 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 land trust where we buying people's homes off of tax foreclosure. We're trying to help people out of it, to keep them in their homes. So there has to be a more political will and courage on the ground in our local communities. The federal government can't keep doing it. I'm telling you, you you're going to wait too long. It's going to be done. It's our local, and let me tell you, in, in, in our local folks, that's where you, you're more powerful than ever. I represent 650,000. I don't know how it is here. Maybe it's by wards or districts or so forth. But they're, ha funny yeah. I mean, even if they're funny shaped, the, the more localized it is, the more power that you all have. So the way you fight gentrification is through your local government. I promise you, I, I, that's the way we've been trying to do it through ballot measures. Find out how to get things on a ballot measure. They, the people are not gonna like it, so what? Push back, push back against the misleading manipulation. Don't let them just uh, you know say jobs, jobs, jobs. No, say great, mm -hmm, let's put that aside. Let me talk to you about something else. Because though you all know this, it's recycled jobs. It's not that the same people are doing the same projects. It's not new folks. It, until we stop this madness of the, doing the same thing over and over again, we're never going to be truly able to really have what I would call true co-ownership of what is happening and the development that's happening in our cities. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for your time. Um, I want to start by thanking Gia and the museum. We're here at the New Orleans African American Museum. Thank you so much for hosting us. Um, thank you, thank you, David, and the team at WHAV for making the broadcast happen. Thank you, Lenny, um, and the team at Ascendants for, for helping us with this event. Um, and in a second, I'm going to let Lenny make an announcement about what's next. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Joyce. Um, thank you, Mark Allen. I know you're probably still listening. And most of all, could you please all join me in thanking con the congressman for our time today?